We are celebrating, as Marie already shared with us, the first Sunday of Advent. And uh, the themes of the four Sundays of Advent, and sometimes you get different ways of, of ordering these, and sometimes there's a few different elements added in. But are basically, uh, if you look up, you know, what does Advent mean? What does each uh, candle of the Advent mean? It's faith, love, hope, and joy. And so today, we're going to be focusing on faith. Usually when we think about faith, especially in the Christian context, is we often think about Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that says this, that faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see, and that this is what the ancients were commended for. And if you go and continue to read chapter 11 of Hebrews, it can, then it begins to do this roll call of faith of the ancients like Moses and Noah and all the ancients of faith who who were given a promise, but they didn't see it fulfilled in their lifetime. And that's really what they're commended for, that they're given this promise that they don't see fulfilled. Abraham is probably one of the best examples when you know the story that Abraham and Sarah were unable to have children, and then one evening God calls out Abraham to look at the stars, and he says, you see the number of stars in the sky. Your descendants will be as numerous as these stars. But it was something that Abraham struggled with. Abraham uh, had already adopted one of his slaves, a Syrian slave, to become his heir. And then, as you know the story, his wife Sarah kind of tried to, to work it out that one of her, her servants actually is the one that gave birth, but she was going to raise the child. That was Hagar and, and uh, Ishmael. But Abraham, his belief that God was going to make this happen, even though he, he kind of wavered and, and, and didn't understand how this was going to be possible, was commended for as being a man of faith, because that's what faith often is. And I think we struggle with that. I think as people we struggle kind of where the thing is, is it possible to have faith when you never see it fulfilled? And we're going to look at an Old Testament passage today, the book of Isaiah, because the, the Hebrew, the Jewish people struggled with this very much, because even though in the Bible, the Bible's a relatively short book given the amount of time it covers. And that if you read the stories in First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel and uh, before the exile into Babylon and even after the exile of Babylon, Israel and the kingdom of Judah was in constant turmoil. That's what it looks like. You know, they just kind of go from one turmoil to another. But the truth is there's a lot of time in between these times of turmoil. And there's a lot of time that takes place. And the Jewish people had to have this hope for a Messiah that was going to come. But the whole generation of the Old Testament never saw it happen. And it was their belief, being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see, that they were credited for as faith. That's why this definition is given. And this is why then there's the roll call of the Old Testament, because the Old Testament heroes never saw their faith that the Messiah was going to come fulfilled in their lifetime. And so we're going to go through uh, chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah today. And as we do so, it's important to remember who Isaiah was. Isaiah was a prophet to the courts of the kingdom of Judah during a time of intense turmoil. Wars, attacks, uh, you know, uh, sometimes he had good kings he worked with as a prophet. Sometimes he had bad kings he worked with as a prophet. And even his good king, which would probably be Hezekiah, it's probably the best king, made a huge mistake in that Hezekiah as an expression of a lack of faith, 
turn to uh, making an alliance with other nations. And in fact, he shows his whole storeroom of treasures to these other nations. And Isaiah tells him that was a huge mistake. And eventually, we know the kingdom of Judah falls. It falls to the, the Babylonians, and they're taken into exile. But before all that happens, there's this chapter, chapter 40, which is, which is a chapter about faith. Now, to be intellectually honest with you guys, there is a lot of debate as to who is the, actually the author of the book of Isaiah after chapter 39, because... It wasn't uncommon for the disciples of a certain prophet, even 100 years, 200 years afterward, to write in his name. In fact, there's a whole section of, of literature called the Pseudopigrapha, which is a whole bunch of books that are written under the name of a different prophet, like the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Enoch are a good example. They weren't written by Enoch, but they're presented as if they were. So there's some scholarly debate as to after chapter 40, is it written by Isaiah or by disciples of Isaiah? But regardless, it's the word of God. So let's go into it. So it begins by this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So in these opening verses, which refers to this hard service of Jerusalem, we see that there's a place of rest for the city. Now, if this was written in the time of Isaiah, this may be a time of rest in between uh, the times that it was under siege. If it was written after the return from ex exile by people in the school of Isaiah, this might be referring to the return from exile. We honestly don't really know. But regardless, it's this place of rest, and it's this place where, where Jerusalem gets a chance to get its feet under her and focus on what the hope is. And the hope is this time of recovery and the time of the coming Messiah. And then there's this very familiar passage in, in, uh, in, the, passage, in the chapter that says this, A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness the highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. So this is the prophetic hope that is found in this, in this chapter of Isaiah. And actually, the Messiah is talked about a lot in the book of Isaiah. Some very specific things said about this coming Messiah. But here's one of the ones that should sound familiar to you, because this is also connected to the ministry of John the Baptist, the one who's the voice in the desert crying out, make way, make straight the path for the Lord. And it's the idea here is that there's this prophecy that's going to take place, and nothing's going to stop it. If a mountain were to stand in its way, it would be made level. If a valley stands in its way, the ground will come up. Not in a literal sense. That's not like when Jesus or John the Baptist walked around, that there's just like earthquakes and, and seismic activity everywhere he went. But it's the idea that nothing's going to stop the plan of God. The plan of God is in motion, regardless of what any, anyone that tries to stop it. And this is a statement of faith. Because a lot of times, when we struggle with our faith, what we're really struggling with is a belief that God can actually do anything in our situation. And when people are in a tough situation and, if, and you find that they're praying and they're struggling with, with that place of faith, you'll find it's really the question of, can God do anything here? Or will God do anything here? And this question, the answer to that question in the prophecy here is, nothing can get in the way. Nothing will ever get in the way of it. It's the way it is. The plan of redemption is a plan that will not be stopped. But, 
like many of us, the Israelites struggled with the idea of time-eroding faith. Because this is what often happens to us, right? We, we have faith in something or we have a belief that something's going to happen, but when it doesn't happen within a timeline that we think it should happen in, then our faith will often become shaky. And it can be over big things and it can be over little things. It can be over something that's very personal in your own life. Is God going to get me a job? Is it, or is there some kind of opening going to open up in my life? Am I going to find someone to be with the rest of my life? Or it could be something huge, like when is the second coming of Christ? And when things don't begin to happen within our timeline, we begin to struggle with that. Because we, we as human beings, are a little bit self-centered. It's just the way it is. And we have a tendency to think that our lifetime is taking place in the most important time of human history. It's just the way we are. It's just like how many of you don't think you'll ever die. You know in your head you're going to die. But there's a little part of you that thinks somehow you're going to be the one that gets out of this. That it's never really going to happen to you. You know? It's just the way we are. We're wired this way. And it's like we also think that time, history began the day we were born. We know there's these stories of things that happen. But in a way, we, in our minds, we kind of think it's theater. And these, these stories of the past just sort of inform the context of our time right now. And so when things don't happen within this all-important timeline of our lifetime, then we suffer with it, we struggle with it. And the church, this is why the church, almost since the very beginning of it, has all, every generation has believed they're living in the end times. Every single one. Because they're living in the most important time in human history. But the scripture tells us again, to have, have some perspective. It says this, For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry out. And I said, Well, what shall I cry? And this is what God has the prophet tell people. This is interesting. This is the message of God to people. There's this prophecy coming. But understand this, people. All men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. In other words, the breath of God is the breath of life, and as life blows on you, as the breath of the Lord is on you, you grow old and you die. Life goes on, and we're part of that cycle. And we're born, we live, we die. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. So faith isn't so much to be based on the idea that God acts in ways that we expect him to act within our lifetime. Faith is the belief in the word of God. And when the word of God says these things will happen, we have faith that it will happen. For the Israelites, when this was written, the faith thing that they were looking forward to was the Messiah. For us, it's very often, it's kind of the same thing, except it's like part two. We look forward to the second coming, you know, when Christ returns and sets all things right. And we're kind of in the same boat. It's just they were in it pre-cross, we're in it post-cross. And we have the word of the Lord. And if it happens in our lifetime, it doesn't really matter. The important thing is that the word of God stands forever. And it's not going to change. And then it goes on to say this. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up to the high mountains. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice and shout. Lift up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. He's your God regardless of whether or not he's fulfilling your expectations. He's still your God. 
You can expect all kinds of things, and you can call it faith. And you can be disappointed when he doesn't meet your timeline, but he's still your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He's coming. He's powerful. And his way, his recompense, the things that are going to go his way are already set out, and it's going to happen. But then, he, but then the, uh, the prophet takes a turn here, and he says, he tends his flock like a shepherd. So with all this idea of power and the sovereignty of God and that he's going to have this happen the way that he wants to have it happen regardless of how anyone feels about it, then he kind of backs off a little bit and says, but he's not like a soldier coming in and lording over and, and bashing people into submission. Instead, he's a shepherd. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, carries them close to his heart, and gently leads those as if they have young. The redemptive plan of God. It's not about destruction or vengeance or war. It's about a shepherd, not a soldier. And this is especially true in Jesus Christ's ministry. Jesus brings this up all the time in the Gospels, that he doesn't come to bring a sword. Well, he does say one time he comes to bring a sword and that his presence will divide families, his presence will divide people. But when Peter tries to defend Jesus with a sword... Jesus is like, this is not what I'm about. You know, he tells Peter, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. He hasn't put it away. Heals the guy that Peter rather ineptly chops off his ear. And then he continues with his destiny, which is the cross. But we know Jesus, he's actually talked about in Isaiah as being one that's going to come and he will not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. That as the Messiah, he is going to come to bring peace and hope and joy. And for the people of Jerusalem who have lived in constant turmoil, this is, a, this is a wonderful, hopeful expectation that they will never see. And this is where faith becomes tough. When it feels like you're not seeing the results that you want to see, again, in your timeline. And so what this, what this chapter tries to do is to bring us into perspective. And the first call to perspective is that the prophet wants you to compare God's perspective to a human perspective. And he says this, Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? And who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scale and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? So the, 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 within the prophetic coming, the, the prophetic expectation of the Messiah, who is going to come as a shepherd, who will guard the hearts of his people and carry them like, as if they were young, he says to them, you know, you folks that are getting antsy about the fact things aren't working out the way you want them to work out, or you're expecting this to happen right now, you need to understand that the Lord's mind is not your mind. And that this human construct that we often put around God, which places him within our expectations, only leads to disappointment. See, there's this kind of fallacy of faith that you'll often hear out there. The world, the world will say, they'll say, well, you know, God is just a, a human construct. 
to help human beings explain the natural world around them. And the people who say that have a deep ignorance as to what the Bible actually says. Because if human beings were to make up the Bible, we would make up a much more convenient God. And this has happened. There are, there are faiths out there which are man-made for men. For example, Mormonism is one of those. Mormonism says that a, human, a man, not just a human being, a man very specifically, will become the god of his own planet if he follows a certain set of rules. And in order to populate that planet, he is to begin to practice populating that planet by having many wives now in this life so that spirit babies that are alive and uh, 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 that are connected to earth can have the process of humanity so they can become gods. So basically, in the name of religion, you get to have multiple wives. And you get to be the top. You are the patriarch. You're becoming a god because a woman doesn't become a god unless the man raises her up to become his goddess. It's completely nuts, but it's good for men. You know, it's a religion by men for men. The God of the Bible is inconvenient. The God of the Bible talks about death to self. Death to self is not convenient. Death to self tells our egos that it needs, we need to die. All our sense of our dreams, of our, of our own perception of who we are, everything that we think we are, it has to die. That's inconvenient. And it has to die in order to have the Holy Spirit of God in our lives and to guide us. And if we were to make up a God, it wouldn't be one that we have to just set ourselves aside in order to reach that place of unity. We would make it all about works, because that makes sense to our minds, and a lot of religions are about works. We would make it about following a certain set of rules, because that's what it is. That's how, or you're a, certain, you're a certain race, or you're a certain ethnic class. You know, humans throughout history have always kind of put people that look like them at the top of the food chain. It's just what we do. But the Bible says all that is nonsense. If you want to be first, the first of, of all will be a servant to all. If you want to really live, you have to die to self. All these things are inconvenient. It's not the kind of God we would make up. And this one is also part of that. It's like, look, you guys don't understand God. You don't really get him as much as you think you do. And it's kind of summed up in Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. You, know, you think you've got me figured out, but you don't. I'm going to have to show you. And this is why Jesus was such a surprise. He was not what people expected. He was a shepherd, not a soldier. And he wasn't what they thought he'd be. And that's one of the main struggles throughout the New Testament. And then the other perspective is this one. It points out the folly in believing that faith, which is sometimes expressed in our religious practices, is really about controlling and manipulating God. Because that's what some people's religion is. If I do these things right, then I can somehow be paid by God. He's going to do things the way I want them to be done. It's this idea that we can control and manipulate God, oftentimes through sacrifice. And that's just another nonsensical thing. So this verse goes on with the idea of having perspective, and then it moves on to the idea of, of the foolishness of trying to control God. Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. 
Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor is animals enough for burnt offerings. Now he kind of slides into this other idea about trying to use sacrifice to manipulate God. Before him, God, all nations are nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Not that he doesn't care about them, but in comparison to power. Who has the power to manipulate whom? Who has the power to control whom? These nations don't have any power to control God. They think they do. They think if they have this nationalistic idea of God is with us, even if we are deep in sin, that we can somehow control God. And the, Isaiah is here like, that's just nonsense. To whom then would you compare God? To what image would you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and fashions silver chains for it. In other words, it's all made by men and people and artists. Nothing against people and artists, but you can't, as a creation, make a god out of the stuff that is creation itself. It's nonsensical. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman and sets up an idol that will not topple. And then I love this part. Do you not know? Have you not seen? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and his people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads it out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. They don't have control over him. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And the whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Because why? Because time goes on. And these people who are the princes and the rulers who think that everything is about them, time goes on. There's a great king named Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great. Can any of you tell me one single fact about Cyrus? Yeah, who remembers, right? He ruled the known world at the time. No one remembers. I mean, there's historians that remember. But average folks like you, does Cyrus the Great directly impact your life? Actually, he does. You might not realize it. But you don't know. You don't care. Why? Because it's like about 5,000 years ago. And to us, 5,000 years seems like a long time. But to the Lord, what? A thousand years is like a day. A day is like a thousand years. He's above all this. And he's not locked into our perspective of time. And so when we have our faith in him, we have to understand who we have our faith in. Our faith is in an eternal God. Our faith is in one who is above and outside of time. Our faith is in one that is not constrained by our agenda and by what we think is important and when we think is important. We have to understand who we have our faith in. And then we'll not be so disappointed when things don't roll the way that we think they should roll or as quickly as they should roll because we have a God whose ways are not our ways and whose thoughts are not our thoughts. And then finally, there's this perspective of sacrifice. Well, kind of coming back to this idea of sacrifice. 
when he talks about this being part of the, you know, David understood this. I kind of forgot this part, but David understood this idea about sacrifice. You know, that why was there sacrifice in the Old Testament? Was it because God needed to be fed? No. God doesn't need to be fed. There's some pagan practices that say that. God needs to be fed. And so that's why they sacrifice. And when they would burn the sacrifice, it would kind of feed God. This is even sometimes even alluded to in, in some Jewish texts. But David understood this. He understood that it's not about the sacrifice for God. Sacrifice in the Bible, when, especially when it leads to worship, is to give context to what Jesus was going to eventually do. The cross, the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world would have made no sense without the context of the sacrifice of the lamb made over Passover, which reminded people over and over and over again of the story when the, lamb, when the angel of death comes into Egypt and passed over those who had sacrificed the lamb and had put blood on the, on the door. Sacrifice would make no sense to us. The sacrifice of Jesus would make no sense to us if we didn't have also the Jewish story of the scapegoat, where the sins of the people were put on these two goats, and one was sacrificed for the sin, the blood shed. The other was let free. And in that story is kind of like this weird sense of there's going to somehow be a payment for our sins, but it's going to also involve freedom. How does that happen? And all of these sacrifices in the Old Testament, they're not the same as worshiping idols that we see in other pagan practices around the Israelites. They were all within the context of eventually having them understand the Messiah. And even with all this in the background, they still didn't understand the Messiah. A lot of them didn't. A lot did. Some did, but not all of them. And then the chapter ends by saying this. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? This is almost a call back to being like Abraham. Go out, look at the heavens. Who created all this? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, which is another term for the kingdom of Judah, why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Who do you worship? Where is your faith? Who is it in? And this chapter ends with this reminder that, that there is a God out there that's beyond us. And it says this, do you, again, do you not know? Have you not heard? He keeps going back to this phrase. I like this phrase. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. If we're going to continue to be a people of faith, we have to understand who it is we worship. We have to understand that our God is an eternal God. His perspective is not our perspective. He, is no, he feels no constraint 
or feels no obligation to our expectations of certain things happening within our lifetime, even though in our minds our lifetime is the most important time in all of human history. Because it's not the most important time in all of human history. Right now, this thing we're going through with corona is kind of a good example of how human beings think. You know, for us, you, you're probably aware of it, that there's, this, there's a big movement that this corona thing and the nuts we have running countries around the world are signs that it's the end. It's coming. It's coming like tomorrow. Maybe. But I can tell you, I don't know when Christ is coming. But I can tell you this. The human species has been through much more difficult things than having to wear masks in church. Way more difficult things than having to wear masks. We've survived far worse. Plagues, wars. You know World War I was called the war to end all wars? Do you know why? Because it was such an unimagined spectacle of destruction and death. New technologies, machine guns, tanks, airplanes, all these things were in World War I. And it was just a disgusting display of gratuitous violence. And people said, this is Armageddon. This is the worst thing that we've ever seen. And you can go to Belgium today and you can still see the trench lines. You can understand when you see hills upon hills of, of gravestones. Why people would say, this is, this is it. This is the war to end all wars. This is Armageddon. After this, Christ comes back. Well, what happened? Well, there's a thing called World War II, and it kind of puts an end to the idea that World War I was the war to end all wars. In fact, World War I wasn't called World War I, obviously, until World War II rolled around. It was just called the war to end all wars, or the Great War. That's what it was called a lot of times. We have this thing in our head that we just think that, that we are the center. But if we want to live our lives focused on, on our God, the way our God is, then we have to understand that even in times when we are down or he's not fulfilling the expectations as we think he should fulfill the expectations, it doesn't mean that he's absent. This is, what, this is what happens with human minds. If God doesn't do things the way that we are expecting him to do it, then somehow he is absent. Where is God in my misery? Where is God in my illness? Where is God in my financial stress? Where is God in my country going to war? Where is God? Where is God? Where is God? In fact, in the 1970s, it was decided what? God is dead. That was like a headline that was like on the newspapers. God is dead. God isn't dead. He's just not obligated to your desires and sometimes fantasies. He has his way that he's going to do things. We can choose to be on board with him, or we can choose to be frustrated with him. But if we choose to live our lives up toward God, instead of bringing God down to us, to our own desires, when we live our life up toward him, then God will give us a faith that will never grow weary. He will be the one that lifts us up. And that God-centric faith is an eagle, and his wings are his holy word. And what we celebrate with Advent is then that holy word would one day become flesh and dwell among us. And the fulfillment of this chapter is finally met 
not with the soldier, but with one born really as a shepherd in a manger surrounded by sheep, his first visitors after his mom and dad are shepherds. He is the fulfillment of that word of God made flesh. And from our perspective, this is a truth that we look back upon to tell us, indeed, the Old Testament did come to fruition in Christ. And it gives us the power and the strength to say, if it happened, if it was faithful and it happened within God's time then, then whatever is to come, God is faithful and it will happen in his time as well. And as Christians, our faith is in who he is and what he's going to do, not in what we expect him to do. And if we keep that place of faith where it's supposed to be, then we'll never be in a place of weary or broken down or have lost our faith. So may we remember as we celebrate Advent that the fulfillment found in the birth of Jesus Christ, which fulfills the Old Testament prophecy, is really just the beginning of more prophecy where Jesus will again fulfill. When that happens, I don't know. I don't know if it will happen in my lifetime or not because... My lifetime and your lifetime, since we're all in the same room together, our lifetime is not necessarily the most important time in human history. But I do know that whether or not I see the second coming in my lifetime or I die and go to Christ, I will see Christ one way or the other. Because of who he is and what he does, what this word made flesh eventually does upon the cross. We're like the scapegoat. He takes upon himself our sin and dies for it so that we can go free. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the depths of your word. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to walk us as people of faith. And Lord, there are folks who are struggling with different aspects of faith right now. It's very common around, you know, Christmas time, but then there's just things going on in people's lives, and they wonder, you know, where are you? How does this somehow fulfill my expectation, or it doesn't fulfill my expectation of faith? And Lord, we pray that you would lift up those on wings like eagles who are struggling right now with issues of faith. And we pray for the church worldwide. We pray for Christians worldwide. Uh, during this time where, you know, people see the, the pandemic as being, you know, this is it. This is the end. And help us, you know, maybe it is, maybe it's not. But I do know, you know, from your word or from history that Tough times come and tough times go. We're going to hear wars and rumors of wars. You know, people saying that out in the desert, here's the Messiah, and you warned us in your word, don't believe it. Until you come, we will have no doubt when you come. And Lord, until that time, may we be faithful. May we trust you. May we set aside our own expectations in, time of in times of disappointment. So that instead of having our heads hanging down, we can be held up, our eyes to you our mouths open in praise, our hands open in a willingness to be used by you, to glorify you, to be salt and light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.